essentially, we, we spent the last four weeks, and today will be the fifth week in, in, in James, talking about the idea of, of suffering. And you'll remember when James began, when the book was first opened up, James sets out and he essentially gives us the, the vantage point, right, that we view suffering through. You'll remember one, two, what did James say? He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so James, he essentially, he defines the scope of the conversation. He limits the scope of the conversation, and he says, when you in, encounter suffering, you do so understanding that it should be joyous. And when, so we spent some time talking about that. And then he goes in, he talks about the, the end of what suffering produces, perseverance, on and on and on. And then we had the week, and he talked about the crown of life that we receive if, if we remain steadfast in suffering. You guys are like, well, this is, man, this is like weeks ago. He really expected us to remember this. Well, James is short. Hopefully, you're reading it daily. It's only five chapters. You read with any speed or haste, you can do that in at least an hour and a half to two hours or three or four, or maybe 15 minutes. But it's this idea that we should be patient in suffering was kind of where we ended. And we talked about the difficulty of that and how our inability to be patient leads to grumbling against one another, complaining against one another, right? And James tells him, he's like, don't grumble against one another. Just stop. You're going to be judged if you do that. In fact, the judge is already at the door. Don't grumble, don't complain. When well, James is going to take us through this last section on suffering. And what he says is just pretty amazing. You see, he's really narrowed down these different ways that we respond in suffering. And now today, James shows us how we respond in everything in life. So no matter what circumstance we run into, no matter what feeling that we come to, James gives us the appropriate response to that. We're going to be in James 5 today, verses 13 through 18. Let me read it for us. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You see, at the heart of 13 through 18, one of the difficulties is, is when people read this, they tend to focus in on a couple of things, and they miss what James is driving at. And so, when we're reading through 13 through 18, you read it, and you're like, ha ha, this is a passage about healing sick people. This is what I do with all the extra olive oil I buy. Or they read it and say, well, no, this is, man, this is about 
this is about how a church should be run. And they focus in on, on, on elders. And they're like, every church needs elders. See, look, that's who you call when you're sick. But at the heart of this passage, let's not get bogged down in, in how a church should be run. Let's not get bogged down on what to do with all the extra olive oil in our house. But let's focus on our response to God, which James largely says is done in prayer. So he starts the passage and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Now you remember that we've talked about this group and we've said that they are facing oppression from the rich in their community. They're facing persecution from the government. And so you can imagine James writing this letter and they receive it. And it, it, Imagine if you would, if James were to say, let's see a show of hands, is anyone among you suffering? Every hand in the group goes up. They're all kind of looking around for the one that's not suffering because they want to figure out how to do that. But see, James's response to them isn't, if anyone among you is suffering, let him reflect upon all the things that I've said previously. You know, he doesn't just sit out and rehash the things that he said before. He is giving them, in essence, a new piece of information, a new piece of the puzzle. And his response to them is, if you are suffering, pray. Pray. His response to them is, if you are experiencing discomfort, this word suffering covers a whole multitude of things that we endure in life. Are you having problems with your family? Are you having problems at work? Are you having problems with a car? Are you having problems in your body, in your church body? And we see from 4.1 that there are some conflicts and some strife going on in this church body that James writes to. And he says in the midst of all of that, don't just try and be clever. Don't just try and figure it out on your own. But in the midst of all of that, stop what you're doing and pray. James, who set up the whole scope of what it is to suffer in terms of counting in all joy, now tells them that when you, when you encounter suffering, stop what you're doing and speak to God. You know, presumably, this prayer would, would be praying over the things that James had told them to do. And so as they encounter suffering, they're praying to God and say, God, help me be patient in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering, they're praying to God and saying, God, help me to count it all joy in the midst of this because of the end of it. They're praying to God and saying, God, help me to be focused on your return in the midst of suffering. God, help me to focus on receiving the crown of life in the midst of, your suf- midst of my suffering and not merely to become embittered. But see, James, then, it, it, it's amazing. He hits suffering really quickly, and then he moves to the other end of the spectrum. What does James say next? He says, is anyone among you cheerful? Imagine this group that everybody in the group has raised their hands. They said, oh, buddy, you want to talk about suffering? Let me tell you my story. And then everybody else, you watch their hands go down because I know what it is to suffer. This morning I woke up at a hangnail, went in to brush my teeth, my toothbrush broke. Went to just do it with just a finger, I don't have any toothpaste. Went to get in the shower, all I have was cold water. Went to go for it anyway, I didn't have any soap. Went to use some mouthwash to just kind of, you know, use that to do something. I didn't have any of that. I mean, I'm just stinking. I'm suffering all over the place. And everybody's like, this is some extreme examples, and this guy clearly needs to run to Walmart. 
But James flips it. He moves to the other end, and he says, Is anyone among you cheerful? This group that is facing oppression and persecution, still there are some in there that are so far to the other side of that that they have set their minds on being joyful, that they are cheerful. And James's response to them isn't, man, that's awesome, or I'm so happy to hear that about you, but it's let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. I mean, how amazing is that, that in the midst of all that's going on in their life, that James's command to them isn't just, man, that's really great, show other people how they can be cheerful, but it's you need to recognize that the cheerfulness that you're able to have in your life is a gift from God. You see, at the heart of all of this, James hasn't shown them how to have a cheerful life, but he says that if you are cheerful, if you're able to have that, you need to recognize that you're only able to be cheerful because God has given you that. And you need to thank him. You need to have an appropriate response to God because of the position that you find yourself in. And that response can only resound in praise. You see, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our frustrations, when things aren't going well at home or at work or at school, it's pretty easy to pray, isn't it? It's pretty easy to, to fall on our face before God and cry out saying, God, I can't do anything to fix this situation, but I know you can. God, fix this situation. But what James keys in on is that, man, when we're on the other side and things are going well and and, and, and the wife's happy with me, and she hasn't asked me to clean the toilet lately, and when things are going well at work, and, and everything is, is, is going well, we tend to forget that that blessing mandates that we respond to God in praise. So we need to turn around and praise God. We need to cry out in song. And unfortunately, for some of us, when we cry out in song, that causes others of us to cry out in pain. It's because God didn't give us all great voices. I know what it is to not have a great voice. I've got a three-year-old that, that loves to sing. I mean, he just loves it. And he's working his voice out. He hasn't quite found out what he wants to be. And I don't have a great voice. But man, this is a reminder to me that in the midst of when things are really going well, that it's not out of some happenstance, that it's not out of some random series of events, but it is God bestowing blessings in my life, and this causes me to turn to him and to praise him for his goodness. We need to be conscious to praise God in the midst of those things that are going well in our lives. Now I warn you, as we enter into 14 and 15, there's been a lot of ink spilled on exactly how you interpret verses 14 and 15. And if you're interested in really digging out some of the deeper things and you want to look at you know, one of the nine different theories for, for what's going on in here, I do a class every Wednesday evening where we dig down deeper into this, but that's not what this time is for. But James writes in verse 14, and he talks about one other response in life. He's talked about the suffering, he's talked about this cheerfulness, and now he focuses in on one who is sick. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
James focuses in on somebody who's sick. This person's bedridden. This person's got a little bit more than a case of the sniffles. This person's got a little bit more than a bad touch of the flu. This person is, is in a bad way, right? They can't get up. They can't walk to the church and, and go to the different elders' homes and ask them to pray. They are calling on them. And so who is this group that James instructs the sick person to call? They are what Paul refers to in 1 Timothy is the elders. They are the, the leaders in the church, Broadly speaking, in the church, we have three groups. We have the laity, we have the deacons who are servants, and then we have the elders. There's there's just not a whole lot of other divisions that we see in the New Testament. And so this is the group that has been given special instruction and provision for the care, for the administration of the church. There's, There's nothing special in them outside that God has set them aside and to lead, to pastor, and to shepherd this body. And it's a group of men. And so the sick person calls them. Now, there's been some question as to whether or not this person is spiritually sick or physically sick. The way I read the passage, this person is actually physically sick. There's something to be said about understanding them as being spiritually sick, and I think that is in the passage, but I think that's a reference to the corporate health that we're going to come to a little bit later. This person is, is physically sick. So they send out a message, the elders come, this person, we figured them lying on a bed, lying on a table in front of them. The elders gather around this person, and they take oil, presumably olive oil, and they, and they anoint the person with that. They put some oil on this person. They're praying over this person, asking that God would work a miracle, asking that God would heal this person. Now... There's nothing special about this oil. James isn't using some special word for oil that cues into all the elders in this area, and they say, he's talking about the special oil. Well, really, well, you know, I, I don't think they'll notice. We'll just bring the cooking oil. You know, see, James isn't using a special word to designate one type of oil over another. There's nothing special about the oil. So you ask yourself, why would he even use oil? Why not use water? We see in the Old Testament examples of kings being anointed with oil, kings being set aside unto a future commitment and a future promise. There's no healing quality in the oil. And so the reason that they are brought in and the reason they anoint this person with oil is to be a a visible representation that they have been set aside for the church to pray for. So it reminds the church that we are praying for this person. It reminds that person that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It reminds that person that they are set apart under the prayer and consideration of the church. And so it's a visible representation of what's going on. And that's why they do the oil. And so the elders are in and they're praying over this person. It says they're praying in the name of the Lord. This is shorthand for saying they are praying under the authority of God. You see, it's not the elders who have some special empowerment for healing, but it is their prayer which is powerful. 
It's not that this group of guys gets together and they're very special and they make the rounds and they're all the rage in Judea as they travel around and people refer to them as the healing group. No, they're just a bunch of ordinary people that God has put a special call on their lives and he is using their prayer in conjunction with his will to bring about healing in this person's life. And then verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now let's stop. Man, this is is a little bit troubling, isn't it? Let's read 15 again. He says, and the prayer of faith will do what to the one who's sick? Save. Well, that can't be right. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. First problem. You know people that have have been prayed for that haven't received this promise? Do you know people that have been prayed for that haven't gotten well? All of us do. In fact, all of us at some point in our lives will contract some malady, will be in some accident, that no amount of prayer will save us, that all of us at some point are going to die. That's a That's a reality of life. Outside the second coming of Jesus, all of us are going to die. At some point, we're going to get sick. And if the elders come, they anoint us with oil, they pray over us, we're still going to die. But what James writes here in verse 15, if you read it, in some ways it seems to be a promise. But let's think about Paul. Let's think about Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 9, he's writing the church in Corinth and he's discussing the fact that he has this thorn in the flesh. And how many times does the text tell us that Paul prayed? Three times. Paul prayed three times that God would remove this thorn and it doesn't get removed. We know in other places, we just study the book of Philippians, you'll remember that there is this great prayer made for Epaphroditus and he was gravely ill to the point of death. And God moved and God saved him. But we see examples in our own lives, we see examples in the text where not everyone is healed. And so what is going on in this text? You see, when Paul write, or when James writes in this, he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, what he is telling us is that this nothing special about the prayer, it's not a specially worded prayer. This is shorthand for in the prayer that is in conjunction with the sovereign will of God will work to bring about healing in this person's life. I've got to be honest, this is, this is a difficult thing for us to grasp. This is a difficult thing for us to understand and to wrap our finite minds around. That God in his sovereignty seems to work with, without a whole lot of respect for my desires. It's not that God and I are in this, this bartering situation to where I say, God, I'll do this if, if you just do this for me. That's what James is telling us, is when the will of God is for this person to be healed, then this prayer will work to bring healing in this person's life. Because we see in the example of Paul and we see in the example of others that not everyone who prays receives healing. But still, they are commanded to go through this process. 
and to pray over this person. And that when it finds itself in, in connection with the will of God, this person will be raised up. This person will be made wholly well. And then we read, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so, you know, some of us start to think, well, this person just hasn't had enough faith, right? You've heard people say that on TV. Maybe you've heard people say that to you. The reason you haven't had your prayer answered is because you don't have enough faith. I would submit to them that I'm pretty sure Paul had enough faith. In fact, Paul goes on in chapter 12 and he says, but the reason that God didn't remove that from me is because he told me that his power is made perfect in my weakness and he has told me that his grace is sufficient for me. You see, God's will is something that we're going to spend a large majority of our lives struggling with and trying to understand as we grow closer and closer to become more and more like him. But some of us might say, well, this, this person, maybe they're sick because they're sinful. Maybe the reason that these things are happening to you is because you're sinful. You remember last week James referenced Job. And you'll remember what happened to Job. He lost everything and then his trio of awesome friends gathered around him and they said, essentially, Job, you've done something wrong, bro. You just need to figure out what it is. You need to write that and everything will be fine again. And Job, he says over and over again, he's like, I haven't done anything wrong. Man, I'm, I'm searching. If there was something I've done wrong, believe me, by the time I got massive boils all over my body, that's about the time I start owning up to things. You're right, I stole a candy bar from Brooker's. I, I should have said that three days ago, but, but okay, the boils, they really sent me over the edge. You see, if there was something, John, or something Job had done in his life, he would have owned up to that. Or we see the example of the man born blind in John chapter 9. The disciples and Jesus engage this man who is born blind, and the disciples come up to Jesus because they have the same understanding that it is sin that leads to sickness. And so they ask Jesus, in the first part of John chapter 9, they said, Jesus, did this guy sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus responds to them. He's like, guys, you're missing it. Neither this person nor his parents sin, but this person is blind so that the greatness of God might be on display. You see, the result of sickness isn't always the consequence of sin. But James's point isn't here, one leads to the other. But if that person has sinned, as those elders pray with this person, as they lead them in prayers of repentance and confession, that person's sins are forgiven. That person's sins are forgiven. And then James transitions in verse 16. And he moves them from the particulars of one individual to something that hits all of us today. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has power as it is working. You see, James realizes that the group he writes to, if you flip over to chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll see this. There are wars and there are strife. And there are people that are being contentious with one another. And you'll remember last week, James talked about the fact that they shouldn't grumble against one another. And so his word to them is, 
confess sins to one another. Confess sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, this is what this is not. This isn't us at the end of our service today standing up and, and shouting to the person on the other side, you know what, I, I hate you. I feel much better now. Oh, you hate me too. Oh, what? Well, what times? I still hate you. All right, you still hate me. Seems to be an impasse. Let's go to Cracker Barrel, talk it out. Dutch, I'm not paying for you because you'll remember I hate you. See, that's not something so silly like that. What James is driving at is transparency in the community. A community that's so devoted to following God that they're not willing to tolerate sin in the body. See, James has moved from physical health to spiritual health. And spiritual health is so much more important in the church. You see, spiritual health, health is a reflection of each individual's relationship before God. And as Paul tells us, that the, the health of one member of the body affects the health of all members of the body. So we will only be as healthy and as vibrant here at Ridgecrest as is our weakest member. We will only be as, as plugged in to the will of God. We will only be used mightily by God as is our weakest member. See, this is why churches should take church members, membership so seriously. As we become members of the body together, there's no, well, this person is doing this over here and they're a little bit contentious, but that's okay because they do it in isolation and they do it in a vacuum. There is no such thing as private sin in the body because your sin, whether in your home, whether in your car, whether in your workplace, affects us here together. And so James comes together and he says, hey, look, we can't have this. We need to be open. We need to be transparent with one another. We need to agree that sin has no reign in this place and that sin has no reign in our body because Jesus mandates that we follow him. And so he tells them, he says, confess your sins to one another. You want to be healed? Confess your sins to one, be, to one another. You want to be healed? Pray for one another. Pray for one another. Now this is more than just me standing up here Sunday after Sunday asking God to move in the lives of the hurting, asking God to move in the lives of those that are sick. This is more than just us getting this prayer bulletin and, and running down through it quickly right before we get in the car or right before we throw it in the trash can. This is committing to a lifestyle of prayer for one another. Now let me ask you, how do you pray for one another? When you, when you, when you throw out prayer and you say, God, I, I pray that you would be at work in this church. God, I pray that you would be at work with, oh, what's their name again? What's their name again? And you see the specificity that, that we're being called to requires that we get to know one another. It requires that we no longer get together because tradition mandates that we come together periodically. But it requires that we befriend 
one another. It requires that we care deeply for one another. We're not praying for one another strictly because we're commanded to. We're praying for one another because we're burdened with the hurts. We're burdened with the difficulties. We're burdened to have fellowship with one another. So James commands, he says, man, be transparent with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. And then James really wants us to understand the power of prayer. He writes, he says, the power, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, as we pray, as we make requests, as we speak and we commune with God, he comes alongside that prayer and through the power and the agency of the Holy Spirit, he invigorates that prayer. He energizes that prayer. And as it is working, as it is transforming our body, as it is healing the sick, as it is giving us fellowship, it's immensely powerful. And it's going to change hearts, and it's going to change minds, and it's going to transform communities, if we'll let it. And then kind of as is James's M.O., he gives us an example You'll remember last week he talked about the suffering of the, of the prophets. He says, as an example in verse 10 of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, James has this crazy notion that the prophets weren't just superheroes. They were just ordinary people that God used to, to accomplish extraordinary things. And so in verse 17 and 18, he uses the example of Elijah in the prayer of Elijah. Do you remember Elijah in 1 Kings? Elijah's there, and the, we've got Ahab and, and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And, and through Elijah's prayer, God rain down, rains down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice, that consumes the prophets. And then here we also see that James makes a reference to Elijah's prayer, that Elijah wanted the punishment of God to come on the king. And so he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three years and six months, not a drop. Not a drop. A couple weeks ago we talked about the early and the late rains that would, that if you didn't get one or the other, the crops would fail. Imagine not getting those. The first year, second year, the third year, and for six more months until Elijah opens his mouth again and he asks God to send the rain. Prayer is powerful as it is working and it is time for us to ask God to send his spirit to revitalize our church, to change our hearts and that he would give such a revival in our personal lives and in our corporate lives that we would see an amazing transformation take place. As we enter into this time of responding to the word of God, what I'm going to ask us to do today is not to go about answering questions, but I'm going to call on us to do what we see here in this passage in James, that we would be open and transparent with one another, that we would pray for one another. So man, the altar is open. If you know of someone in this body that you need to go and pray with, get up, walk over, 
pray with this person. Don't let your heart be hardened any longer, but turn to God in prayer. Guys, let's quit just going through the motions of church and let us start praying. Let us start asking that God would be with us. Let me pray for us.